What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to The Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, and we got the crew today, Pete McKenzie. Hey, yes. Gabby Magnuson. What's up? Alex Audie. Good day. And good day. is that a New Zealand good day too? <laughs> <laughs> and Jake Dello. Greetings. Why am I always last, man? That's a question <laughs> that requires introspection <laughs> on your part. <laughs> that's a that's a question the pod doesn't have time to unpack. It's it's not for me to answer that question. <laughs> So just a, a a quick weird hit before getting into the show. The Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, they're this think tank that's carved out this restrainer position on foreign policy, but they've also and they they're technically nonpartisan, but they get a bunch of coke money and they also have progressives and leftists on the payroll. And so they're this weird hybrid that we've talked about many times in the pod. It's hard to know what to make of them. Sometimes I'm like in vehement agreement with them. And then in other times, they seem to strike a tone that is very antagonistic toward the rest of Washington, which is, I think, like not a very you know effective way of, of being in Washington most of the time. But also, they a lot of the stuff that they do strikes a moral chord, but not an analytical one. And national security is just, I think we've talked about this before too. It's like overwhelmingly a national security analytical space, right? So if you don't have analytical reasoning, it's hard to get traction with your advocacy. And so there's like a little bit of confusion in their their own identity. And I, I say that all that as prelude to news that some of the people who are in their orbit, people who are non-resident fellows... Um, I think one who's actually on the payroll, they are associating kind of openly with the gray zone. And if you don't know what the gray zone is, then good for you, because it's one of the leading hubs in the disinformation wars. So it's a tanky conspiracy theory website that mostly attacks the attacks anybody who's on the left who takes an anti-authoritarian position on an issue. They're the ones who spread conspiracy theories about the UN and Syria. They they defend fucking Bashar al-Assad. They deny that he used chemical he used chemical weapons against his own people. The list goes on. The the guy Max Blumenthal who founded it has ties to both RT and to the Global Times, the China CCP mouthpiece newspaper. And so it's like all kinds of bad, right? And the, the, the stuff that's happening with the Quincy Institute right now, these guys associating with them specifically over sowing doubts about the genocide in Xinjiang. So they're going to work on the China issue the same way they went to work on trying to deflate Russiagate, trying to whitewash Assad, go down the list. They're stalwart defenders of Glenn, Glenn Greenwald, just gross. Uh, in so many different ways. And I said this on Twitter or some version of this, but basically like I see nothing progressive in this. This is consistent with that whole like QAnon should, or, you know, the left should ally with QAnon thing. Like this is of a similar spirit and it ain't right. Conspiracy theories, disinformation websites. There's nothing progressive about that. Um, There's certainly nothing liberal about that. Like we're debasing our ability to even have 
reasonable discourse, reasonable analysis. Um, and I, I think that there's a, there is a tradition on the left that says, look, it's any means necessary to get our agenda done, you know? And so if you're opposed to American empire, it's like, well, maybe we have to partner with the conspiracy theories to take liberalism down. I feel like that's all kinds of backwards. It's it. I mean, I disagree with the notion that liberalism is the enemy anyway, but like, even if that was what I believed, it's not a left position to go by any means necessary. That's what you do when your existence is threatened. The black radicals, Malcolm X said that because it was the black existence that was threatened. It was blacks living in settler colonialism in America. They were under occupation by white supremacy. It's a totally different thing than some white millennial who's on the RT payroll writing disinformation blogs. It's a, this is a totally different thing. And so for the Quincy Institute to, to flirt with this space at a time when their own identity is in conflict and in question is at best, it's a super not good look. Sowing doubts about genocide in Xinjiang is paralysis for the left on China policy because uh, it's the, the current talking point of a lot of folks on the left who are worried about competition with China or rivalry with China is to say uh, we need to find ways to cooperate with China no matter what on certain things like climate change, right? Or like shrinking inequality. And when you throw the fact that China is engaged in a kind of techno genocide on the table, it really undermines any argument for trying to find common cause with them. Like you don't find common cause with, with Hitler, right? And so the genocide reality is a very tough pill to swallow when it comes to your political work, what you're trying to achieve in policy. I don't know. This is like a bad situation. And I don't think the left is served by embracing doubts about genocide in Xinjiang. I don't know what you guys think about this. Uh, you're exactly right, man. We're not served by it. If anything, it makes us look like idiots because when we say we're on the far left, well, when I say I'm on the far left, yeah, you, not us. it immediately gets thrown. I'm, I'm counted as one of these people. Yeah, it's also not going to last. If you were to build momentum in favor of your policies on a foundation that's analytically not valid, it, it will deteriorate over time. Like you can't, you can't actually achieve what you want or realize what you want when the grounds for it are false. Yeah. Politics is a process. It's not like you hit some specific outcome and it's locked in and that's it. Like that isn't how it works. I got a couple questions about it. So I thought I would mention it up front. Do you see the backlash for this working and that they're not going to continue down this road or are they going to keep going for like a little while more? I mean, they're institutionally, it's not like they're taking a position on Uyghur genocide. It's just that people who are in their ecosystem, every think tank has its own sort of tentacles or network. And right. you can see what the like ideological makeup or the partisan makeup is of that network. You just look at what they're doing. And so the activities of the people who are affiliated with them matter because that's how you like define the identity of the think tank. And so these people, Quincy is not taking a position. Their people are in this gray space that is sort of like deleterious to good policy. It's not clear if Quincy is choosing people who are prone to do this or if they're choosing people that and they're glad they're doing this. But it's like either way, this is... I don't know. It's not a good look. 
Let's do Prediction Market, where we get Van to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. Alright, for Prediction Market this week, question one. Will Israel succeed in establishing a proposed Quad Nation Defence Pact between themselves, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia? Um, and I've been told this has been like an open secret for the past year or so. Is that true? Well, so this is one of those quasi-kleptocratic projects that Jared Kushner and Trump were working on. Gulf money is, I mean, intrinsically kleptocratic. Although if you want to sponsor the show, let's talk. (laughs) (laughs) MBS is 100% one of our listeners. Five stars. So this this, uh, idea of Gulf states forming an alliance with Israel, if this was to happen in a world where Palestine has sovereignty in its own state and the Israel-Palestine conflict was at least stable or like 90% settled, then I feel like this would be a good thing. It'd be a great thing because Arab-Israeli antagonism has been at the heart of so much conflict in the Middle East, you know? But aside from the kleptocratic angle and like, you know, wondering if, if all of this is actually legitimate, there's a real question about how this kind of policy move does work against the Palestinian cause. It's like the most anti-solidaristic thing I could think of to align yourself as a, as a Gulf nation with Israel at a time when Israel is basically a settler colonial state of this territory that we call Israel where Palestinians are not treated as uh, either having sovereignty of its own or as equal citizens, right? And so you can't judge the analytical merits of the policy separate from the political context and the political consequences of this kind of move. And what this kind of move does is isolate and encircle Palestine so it's really damaging. And so like, I'm not in a fan of this in any way. However, context matters. And if the context changed to one where there was a valid two-state solution, this could look very different. It would be like, oh, okay. Question two. Will any other Commonwealth nation parliaments follow Canada's example and officially declare what is happening in Xinjiang a genocide? Genocide coming up. So this is... Um, this is <laughs> It wasn't supposed to sound cool. Every time. It was just like we were just talking about this, you know? Yeah, so this is a political thing. I hope other Commonwealth countries follow suit. Uh, my guess is that the UK will at some point. Uh, I don't know about other countries, maybe Australia, but I'm, I'm not so sure. What's interesting here is that the designation of genocide, everybody recognizes that it's a political act. It's a speech act, you know, and that's why it's so damaging to sow doubts about it. And if you come out and express doubts about it, you're doing political work and you have to ask who you're doing that political work for. And so it's like you got to either stay quiet about this or you got to make sure you're on the right side of the politics of this. What does it do to say, well, it's not a genocide? I'm not saying there's not oppression there but it's not a genocide. That's the fucking tanky answer, man. Yeah. That's is. what works for the CCP. That's what the Global Times wants you to say. 
I don't believe in doing the weird McCarthyist thing where everybody has to chant the same thing I'm chanting, but you can't go to work against it either. Like you can't be opposed to it. That's unless you unless you have evidence to the contrary or something. You know. Question three: Will the CCP push to introduce any further security laws in Hong Kong following the imprisonment of forty-seven Hong Kong opposition members before August? A hundred. Do you think they're gonna double down? Yeah, of course. 100%. We've been slowly taking over Hong Kong, but we're going to stop and reverse that now for no reason. Like, come on. This this was what was baked in. This ever since the repression of the protests, like in our earliest episodes of the podcast, I was say what we were saying how this was going to happen. It was China gradually exercising greater control de jure and de facto of Hong Kong. And it's culminating now in crushing dissent through, you know, bureaucratic and legal avenues. No, it's it's really not. It's actually quite terrifying. Is it going to just, are they going to make it just so it's just like the mainstream China where there is no real opposition? I think that's the intent. Yeah. I Like so far, China's been dealing with Hong Kong as if it was a colony or part of an empire. Carrie Lam for a long time the way I saw her was not as some like independent administrator, but as the local intermediary that, you know, the satrap or the viceroy on behalf of the imperial yeah. center, you know, the encroachment onto Hong Kong or the control of Hong Kong, it's going past that to uh, full integration. Well, that's really unfortunate and a hell of a downer, but there's prediction market this week. Time for Say Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. So I just have one for uh, Stay Off Twitter this week from friend of the pod, James Palmer, an editor over at Foreign Policy. Actually, it's like a twofer because it's James Palmer tweeting Elsa Kania. And Elsa has this very long, good thread, but very long, too long for me to read here, where basically there's a a retired one-star general who's a, a psychopath. And he's cut out of the Steve Bannon cloth. And I'm not going to utter his name because I don't want to give him um, more follows because he sucks. But he has been attacking people on Twitter for months uh, very personally. And he's their attacks that are determined solely by whether you are reluctant to sign on to Sino-US rivalry. Like if you expressed a nuanced view... Not just an apologetic view for China, but like if you're just you think the rivalry thing is overwrought, you know, Indo-Pacific stuff is going a little too far. He will attack you personally. And this is like a retired general, you know. So he attacked Elsa on on Twitter and she's like a, a very good nuanced voice on Twitter, but also kind of a skeptic of the China rivalry stuff. She's a China. She's like a legit China expert. She was just writing this long thread reflecting on being attacked as, you know, working on behalf of the CCP or China and kind of bemoaning the state of the discourse and like how unhealthy China policy discourse is when you can't take a nuanced position at all without being attacked. And one part of that long thread she says that a lot of these accusations about being unduly influenced or sympathetic to CCP interests 
is most often targeted uh, at women, especially women in the early stages of their career, people of color, uh, especially Asian Americans. These are the people most often painted with the panda hugger brush. And um, James Palmer says to that, he, he agrees with the observation, but then he's like, this is particularly baffling to me because while I do think useful idiots, people unwittingly co-opted by CCP influence efforts, they exist. They almost are entirely older white men from business or government. And <laughs> this is super true. It's, it's only... The old white guys who are care for the, like 99% of them, it's old white guys who are carrying the water. And it's really, it's not even so much that they're carrying the water for China so much as for neoliberalism and that pro-integrationist, pro-trade view. And they want to preserve that no matter what. Some of them are sentimental about China because it's like, oh, the Nixon Mao. Uh, like we've had 100 years of the China market and the junkets and they've built up close ties. And so like there is some sentimentality among some of them, but a lot of them are just carrying water for profit. You know, they see China as a money making thing. And I think about in New Zealand, like to the extent there's a China debate here, which there's really not, it's very stilted. The people who openly express pro-China positions do tend to be precisely this demo. It's the fucking older white guys with the business yeah. interests. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> so there's all kinds of truth, truthiness in this um, that's worth worth paying attention to. This whole episode feels like it's being like China flavored in a unique way. So who the hell came up with Panda Hugger? <laughs> Dude, I don't know, but someone that likes China. we've been saying that in the Pentagon for a long time. Panda hugger, <laughs> red China. What? What else? There's like a bunch, man. I don't. I think it's a. It's probably a poor or outdated figure of speech now, because I'd, I'd fucking love to be a panda hugger. You know, like if I could be a panda hugger <laughs> all my life, in a very literal sense, that sounds phenomenal. <laughs> But I, I feel like that's very much in conflict with what the Pentagon's looking at right now. Yeah. There's all kinds of pathologies woven into this. It should be a good thing to hug a panda, yeah. Well, now I feel bad taking off from that nice sentiment <laughs> into <laughs> my tweets. Uh, the first one is from Michael Kaufman, Senior Research Scientist at CNA and Fellow at the Center for New American Security. So he tweets, I'm coining a new term, Alliance Ragnarok. This describes the belief that U.S. failure to fight for Taiwan would lead to a cascade collapse of U.S. alliances, with U.S. allies and partners choosing to abandon existing agreements to bandwagon with revisionist China. To be clear, I don't share this belief, but I've heard it often enough in discussions that I think it needs a name. Um, I wanted to pitch this tweet for a couple of reasons. Firstly, obviously to get your take on it, if you agree with the sentiment of Alliance Ragnarok, which, by the way, metal as hell name, I'd listen to the band. Um, and secondly, I was just surprised there wasn't like already a specific term that you'd use unless there's another way to describe like cascading collapses of U.S. alliances. Yeah, I mean, it's a domino theory argument, which is yeah, I mean, right? conceptually that's like the closest <laughs> to thing. It's it's definitely a bullshit argument that is very common. And the more right wing you are, the more you believe that there's a direct causal arrow between Taiwan collapse and alliance network collapse as if. And like Taiwan is not a treaty ally. Their situation is so unique that we shouldn't expect generalizations to be made based on it. Like the idea that it would catalyze some larger set of things kind of 
uh, that's just like a perspective of the situation in Taiwan that's not does not reflect reality in Asia. So like I think this is very right. I think it's smart to point this out. I will say I don't know what the fuck Ragnarok is. Nordic apocalypse. <laughs> the idea, the idea makes sense. I don't know what the term means. It means like the end of days for the Vikings. So it's a Viking well, term it's... for like cascade to the end of the world. Yeah, pretty much. Like, yeah, or the... at least the end game here. <laughs> that is really good wow. term for it. Yeah. Bouncing off that then. Um, so my second tweet of the week is from Michael McFaul. Uh, professor of International Studies at Stanford, uh, International Affairs Analyst for NBC News, and columnist for the Washington Post. We definitely mentioned his name a few times here already. Mikey McGaff. Um, and his tweet... Sorry. <laughs> goat. The term is goat. Uh, but um, <laughs> his tweet I picked up for the week is spicy two sentences. Saudi Arabia needs us. We, being the U.S., don't need Saudi Arabia. When I tell you the comment... Se- uh, sorry, the comment section for this tweet went hard. They, like kind of definitely went off so i obviously have to get your take on this man yeah i wish everybody could this is such a simple thing to internalize but u.s policy for 30 years does not reflect this there's this view that i mean like it's almost like we're habituated to thinking that we need saudi arabia because they have oil as if nobody else has oil or as if we don't have them by the balls because they are wildly insecure in their own region and they're not a legit, like, they are themselves kind of kleptocratic oligarchs, you know, the oil monarchy. Like, they, they don't have a legitimate leg to stand on politically at home. They're insecure in their own region abroad. They need us desperately in so many ways. But we act like we're dependent on them somehow, which just, that leads to all kinds of distorted outcomes in the Middle East. It's not smart. I'm glad Mike sees it. You, I mean, you, if you're arguing for Saudi Arabia... <laughs> You're getting paid off of oil money, or you're a psychopath. <laughs> yeah, for like, sure. Like, there's no, yeah. I, it doesn't make any sense. Let's jump into armchair analysis, where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it. This week for armchair, we have an article from Foreign Affairs titled Japan, and it's by Chang Che, a writer based in Shanghai. I'm actually not super sure what their background is, so it's it's an interesting piece for that reason. But broadly, the, the thesis they're pursuing here is that, as they write, while the United States abandoned its allies and succumbed to a liberal populism under President Donald Trump, Japan remained a stalwart of the liberal rules-based international order. And that as the administration of President Joe Biden seeks to repair frayed alliances, Japan has become the key to restoring American credibility in Asia. And as they pursue that thesis, they provide a little bit of context. They explain how from the 1950s, Tokyo pursued a largely reactive foreign policy that Japanese diplomats described on various occasions as sterile, naive, and what they say is plagued by a conspicuous absence of strategic thinking. As the journalist Richard McGregor said in Asia's Reckoning, for decades, Washington's message to Tokyo on defense had been simple do more. And that's what happened in the kind of first years of of the 2000s, where you had Prime Minister Jinotiro Koizumi and Prime Minister Shinzo Abe doing that. They engaged in more international humanitarian and peacekeeping work by through the self-defense force. And they reinterpreted the constitution to allow the self-defense force to engage in what they call mutual support of allies. And what the article says is that those domestic reforms of the first decades of the 21st century 
made Japanese leadership in Asia possible, and particularly that Trump's election made it necessary. We saw Japan salvaging the CPTPP. We saw it through 2001 to 2011 funneling $12.7 billion in aid to, the South, to Southeast Asia and the Pacific, which was double China's spending over that time. And in 2015, establishing a $110 billion partnership quality infrastructure fund, which was also dedicated to the region. And that as a result of those kinds of moves to support the region, a 2019 poll, albeit one that was commissioned by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Japan, found that 90% of respondents in the 10 countries that make up ASEAN describe Japan as friendly and reliable. And so with this kind of context that the article presents of a, a friendly and reliable Japan, it also then looks at the flip side, which is that, as they write, after four years of Trump and a disastrous response to the coronavirus pandemic, many in Asia no longer view the United States as a defender of the liberal order or even a trustworthy partner. And that any attempt to reassert American primacy overnight will further alienate countries in the region. Over the last four years, Japan has built up a reservoir of trust and goodwill with Asian countries. The United States can access that goodwill, but only if it learns to listen and follow the lead of its longtime ally, instead of attempting to reinvent the wheel. Then the moves that Shinzo Abe and his predecessors have taken to, to reposition Japan, particularly in its engagement with the rest of the region have been really controversial. And this is the first time I'd seen them in, presented in quite a, a positive light. What was your view on the article? I quite like this piece, and I'm not sure how much I like it simply because it's a novel take. Smart people, or I guess I shouldn't say smart people since I'm talking about myself, but like I am, and like a lot of people are attracted <laughs> to novel arguments. It's like, oh, that's different. And the difference is Higher intellectuals. Yeah. <laughs> like myself. I think I'm attracted to the novelty of this, but I find a lot of it to be not untrue, which is to say that Japan has been for the past generation kind of an unsung source of regional stability. So in they've also been um, at times kind of a, a foot soldier for the U.S. Or, or like even a lackey for the U.S. And they've done things that have antagonized others in the region. I mean, mostly South Korea uh, and North Korea and to some extent Taiwan and China, but mostly the Koreas. But on the, on the whole, Japan is a major source of foreign direct investment in Southeast Asia. The trans-border, transnational supply chains that crisscross Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia, a lot of those are Japanese built with Japanese capital, Japanese firms. Japan had, was a leader of the financial and monetary multilateralism in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And it's that, that monetary cooperation at a regional level that helped protect Asia from the worst consequences of the 2008 financial crisis. And then you see Japan bailing in to save um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, all this stuff. Like Japan has done a lot of work to kind of make, I find this problematic, but like to almost like launder the Trump administration to do its best to keep perceptions of the U.S. as normal as possible. Um, at a time when obviously America was not normal. So you see all these ways in which, you know, some I agree with, some I don't, but like where Japan is this force for um, stability or order 
uh, and the free and open Indo-Pacific garbage from the Trump administration, like to the extent that there's anything salvageable in that, it came from Japan to begin with. Japanese officials have have said that, like that they're the sort of intellectual wellspring for this stuff. So like, you know, liberal international order is an overwrought term. It's never fully applied to Asia. There are downsides to liberal international order, like blind spots. And so you have to own that too. But it's also like a, it's better than anarchy. It's a, there are ways in which it's been good for Asia. And Japan has been very central to regionalist projects and regional development, economic interdependence, a lot of the good things. America gets credit for this stuff insofar as it, you know, helped set Japan up for success 40 years ago or whatever. But a lot of the real work of like being a force for good has come more recently. And yet, despite all of that, you have some like hardcore right wingers in Japan who are completely unapologetic. They're glorifying of the imperial days. It was only 20 years ago that you had Southeast Asia still very worried about Japan rearming, right? Not long ago. South Korea, I mean, is we talked about this last week. They're ready for fucking war with Japan if Japan steps wrong when it comes to uh, Dokdo Takashima. I, we don't. We like to pretend that that's not the case, but it, it, it's very much the case. Like if you talk to fucking Koreans, Japan's a bad guy, man. It's that simple. China, of course, is in a strategic rivalry with Japan. So it's not like Japan is any kind of guarantor. The paradox in with this piece with Japan as the leader of Asia's quote-unquote liberal order is that Japan, it functions in this very positive way only insofar as its influence is like subtle and not heavy-handed and not front of stage. It's all operating kind of in the background. And when you try to foreground it, or if you try to foist leadership onto Japan, that becomes much more contested, much more volatile. The Japan, as it's currently been the last like 10 years or so, might be the sweet spot. Like this might be as good as it gets. Having said that, I do kind of like the idea that local powers are sort of leading the shaping of things as opposed to the U.S., for like many, many reasons, you know? This is not a novel take. The geniuses in the pod might not like it, but there are real <laughs> clear parallels between the role of Japan at the moment and the role of Germany. And I think, you know, if I was a Japanese policymaker, I'd be thinking about how can I attain the position that Germany has achieved? Because, you know... Germany today. Eastern Europeans and Southern Europeans still fucking hate Germany. Yeah. But there's still at least a, a level of trust that's... Well, there's a level of trust for Germany that's still greater than the level of trust that South Koreans have, in, have for Japan or, or some in the Pacific and Asia have, it, have for Japan. So as those two middle powers start to increasingly start to diverge from America, it will be really interesting to see how they pursue that increased level of trust. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot at stake, I think, more than people appreciate but about like the, the tenor of Japan-South Korea relations moving forward because if you get south korea on board with japan as some kind of like functional leader or de facto leader you're good to go like the regional order at that point is kind of self-perpetuating there's a there's a big china question but you know you might expect like a balance of power to work itself out or something with south korea with both koreas kind of staunchly opposed to japan 
it, it makes it, it just complicates the whole thing in a way that's I don't know potentially more destabilizing all right time for ask me anything where people ask me anything Sweet. So for Ask Me Anything this week, we've got three questions. The first one is from an anonymous second-year student at Victoria University. I've heard that Confucius Institutes help spread propaganda and have read reports linking them to spying. What are your thoughts on universities hosting them? Oh, man. I'm mostly against it. There should be alternative sources, uh, and sometimes there are, from national governments, from Taiwan, which also knows how to teach Chinese, right? So if it's about... If it's about getting the language um, acumen in your curriculum, in your universities, you don't need to do the Confucius Institute thing. As far as I know, not all Confucius Institutes are equally bad and equally working for the united front, but some are, and individuals within some are, and it provides an institutional cover that legitimates interactions around subversive actions, espionage, propaganda, and so it's not like I don't see them as a good thing. It is controversial, though, and there are places where they are more neutral than others. Like they're not equally, I don't know, malign. And for the second question, it's from Patrick Ferran, a friend of the pod at the University of Missouri. Should we be more worried about financial interests and academic freedom at think tanks versus academy? Also, thanks for being the GOAT of IR podcasts. The GOAT? Of IR podcasts. I didn't say it. Patrick said it. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so I'll take it, man. Financial collusion or financial compromise is definitely a bigger issue in think tanks than in universities. Somewhat because universities are getting government funding, especially if they're public universities, whereas think tanks most of them are not getting, especially in the U.S., are not getting government funding or the government funding is like marginal compared to where they're getting anonymous corporate donations or whatever. And so um, this is a much bigger issue in the think tank space. And ultimately, like academic research, the stuff you publish, it has to meet a certain level of like peer review quality. But in a think tank, you can just publish horse shit. You can publish whatever. There's no quality check or quality assurance. So you can get paid money to publish some research that makes a bunch of arguments about why the government needs to do business with Lockheed Martin and then sell that report and do press releases for it and everything. And it's it can be funded by, indirectly, Lockheed fucking Martin. And there's nothing there's nothing that makes that illegal. So that's that's a problem, yeah. So I, I think worrying about it much more in think tanks than in academia. Recently, there have been news about U.S. bombing Iranian-backed facilities in Syria. A lot of criticism and jokes have been going around because President Biden reportedly chose from the middle option of a broad range of options presented to him. Isn't that how the decision-making process has been done? Where information is condensed to the top and a lot of different things end up getting left out. Would you be able to explain the process more and whether the ridicule the Biden administration is currently receiving is justified or not? can't believe Gabby made you read that question. I know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't you just ask the question? I don't know. So there is no, you know, systematic process for high-level decision-making. Like, it's the space of judgment. It is traditionally quite normal for an executive to pick the middle of three options and it's a it's kind of a joke 
among analysts or staffers that you create false extreme options and then you put the one you want in the middle to game the system. But one, there's no guarantee that would work. Two, that happened in the Trump administration about something, I can't remember what, and Trump actually chose the extreme decision. So you don't want to game, you have to be careful about gaming the system, you know? I don't know that the the process, whatever that looks like right now, is the reason why Biden chose to bomb forces in Syria. I think that's, it's like a less disastrous version of the Bay of Pigs. Like this is something that was cooked up in the Pentagon already. And then they served it up to Biden as the new president. And he's like, yep, let's do it. And it's, you know, it's like America is back. And nobody's paying any attention to the fact that, like, the CPAC nut jobs are over there entertaining conspiracy theorists and promising revenge on everybody, on their liberal enemies. And we're just going <laughs> to hand them the keys to the fucking empire in four years uh, as if it's a normal presidency when actually it's fucking Nazi Germany. In the meantime, we're just bombing people being like America is back. This is, there's, there's all kinds of, like, colors of danger to this, man. Um, and people are not getting it. To make a decision to use force so early, it, t- it tells me that like we're in a groove of habitus. Like we are, we're on autopilot strategically because this doesn't square with uh, anything Biden has said about the Middle East so far as from what I can tell. Um, and I, this is definitely not what like the Democratic Party wants to be seeing on balance. So um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't love it. Is this like confirmation of the deep state? Because like, isn't this exactly sort of what the deep state is? Like, Why do you got to go there, man? Yeah. I, I, have to, going, I have to ask. I have to ask. We're taking a hard turn to becoming a Trumpist booster podcast today. Jake Dello on the I gray know, zone. It's like so shit. It's so like, it's. I want to just prove all of this stuff, but then Biden goes and does this, and I'm like, oh, man. Oh, he's just making our job really hard. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a huge difference between a deep state and an administrative state. If you think those are the same thing, then, you know, you could plausibly make that argument, I guess. But the administrative state carries out this stuff on an ongoing basis, right? That's what that's what's very Bay of Pigs about it, you know? And so it's like the politicos switch in and switch out, but there's this machinery that's producing options and evaluating things on a continuous basis. They're the ones who frame stuff for the politicos to choose. So I don't see that as like a deep state so much as kind of a, maybe we need to think about what we're doing before we decide to use force. Okay, folks, that's going to do it. Uh, buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic. If you want to send us coffees, we got some new merch. It's on, uh, it's on cottonbureau.com slash undiplomatic. I think uh, if I'm getting that wrong, then oh well. And uh, catch you next time. Peace.